Our Bible reading this morning is the very beginning of John's Gospel. You'll find that on page 886 of the Pew Bibles. So we're looking at the introduction that John gives, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you, Nigel. And thank you, Andy and Izzy and our musicians. Now, our focus right through the Christmas uh, period, really starting uh, today, will be um, John's Gospel. <clears throat> and on the four Sunday mornings... Um, Today, 17, 24, and 31st, and also on Christmas Day, we'll be in one chapter, John chapter 1, just going slowly through it. At the carol services, text from John's Gospel, let me just flag that up so we can be praying. Uh, tonight at 7, John 3, 16 to 21, for God so loved the world. And next Sunday at 4 o'clock and at 7, John 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, all of these services, as God's word is preached, our expectation, not our human expectation, nor our belief, nor our conviction, because, <clears throat> humanly speaking, no one will come, no one will come to faith, and yet they will. Our expectation is that God will speak in the power of the Spirit, offering Christ. At every service, including this one, as the word of God is preached, not because of eloquence or anything on our part, but just because it is the living, dynamic, 
supernatural word of God and the power of the Spirit, God speaking through his word in the Spirit, offering Christ, Jesus Christ, the man Christ is offered to us. The person. Not a theory, not propositions, not doctrines, not truths, but the person. Christian faith is faith in him. And life in him. What kind of life? A forgiven life. That's a big deal. A transformed life, purposeful life, shepherded life. That's a massive deal. A life lived in the light, a comforted life. A life lived for eternity. That's what's an offer. Now, it's not that we take John's gospel and turn that into its purpose. It is its purpose. And we've got to cut with the grain of the word of God because to do so is to let God speak. He inspired his word. We speak it. He speaks. So John wrote this as the purpose of his gospel. Jesus did many things. But these things are written down in the words of John's gospel so that you may believe and have life. So as we speak from John's gospel, people will believe and find life. Now let's be praying earnestly for that. And let's try and overcome that particular bit of darkness in our minds. Let the light overcome this bit of darkness that that's not going to happen. I mean, the church is full this morning of people in whose lives, many of us, it has happened. What does Christmas offer for those of us who are Christians? Is it just an evangelistic focus? No, it is a season for evangelism and edification. Now, that word edification it means, amongst many things, Christians being profoundly comforted by the fact that we are Christ's, that life and light have invaded our lives, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is eternal, in other words, he existed in eternity before he created the world, that same Jesus Christ that was born as a child who became a man, the miracle maker, the greatest teacher who has ever lived, who died on a cross, who was raised, who reigns, who sends his Holy Spirit, that Christ has invaded your life and mine and turned on the light of life. That's a big deal. And when you, as someone in our church family, two people have recently done, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil for he will be with you. That's a marvelous thing. Now, John chapter 1. Uh, we read verses 1 to 18. Our focus this morning is simply verses 1 to 5. Let me read them again, and then we'll uh, pray. So John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word is the title John uses here for Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, the Word, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's an ESV sentence for you, all the wrong way around. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
That wasn't part of John. <laughs> one more verse from John 1 to put these verses 1 to 5 in their context is John 1.14. This word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, taking upon himself our humanity in order to save us. So shall we pray. Loving God, will you speak to us through these words in the power of the Holy Spirit and offer Jesus Christ to us. We want to meet with him. We want to experience life in his name. For some of us, that will mean coming to believe in him for the first time. Help us to believe. Open our eyes. For many of us, it will mean relishing who we are in Christ and all the blessings that are ours. Help us to see his glory and relish the life and light of Christ within us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you'll see from the service sheet that I am... Uh, I've simply set out the verses with the intention that we work through them systematically. Before we do that, let's consider them as a whole. That's as a package, verses 1 to 5. In order to appreciate the significance of what is being described here in John 1 and through the rest of John's Gospel. And what I mean by that is John the writer writes verses 1 to 5 to set off some rockets or fireworks that take our minds to other parts of the Bible. It's almost like a direct quotation. So where is he quoting from? What might seem obvious is the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 to 5. Now, don't turn back to Genesis 1, 1 to 5. I want you to look at John 1, 1 to 5 as I read Genesis 1, 1 to 5. Look at John. Here's Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was dark. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now the parallels are obvious and striking. Unquestionably, that's what John has in his mind. And I think you would agree with that. It's clear that John at the start of his gospel intends us to draw a link with the opening verses in the Bible. Now what might not seem as obvious but is as obvious, just that we don't know the literature as well, is that John, when he writes verses 1 to 5, wants to set a rocket off that takes us to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation, also written by John. Let me read to you Revelation 19, 11 to 15. This is just unfamiliar to us because of the nature 
of the, the genre of literature, apocalyptic literature. In Revelation 19, what we have is a description of the second coming of Jesus. The second coming, when he will come as judge and the beginning of the new creation. And again, keep your eye on John's gospel and notice the textual link as I read Revelation. Then I saw, this is John writing in Revelation, Christ's revelation. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. That's uh, one of the apocalyptic images of Jesus. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And then this is the key text. And the name by which he is called is the Word. The Word of God. It's a clear textual link with John 1. It's very rare to refer to Jesus as the Word. It's a kind of climactic, all-consuming, summing up term for who the Lord Jesus is. It's there in John 1. It's there in Revelation, the return of Jesus. Now, there are clear textual links between these three passages. And I think that is, is, is undeniable. Genesis 1, John 1, end of the Bible, Revelation 19, the return of Christ, the new creation at the end of this age. Now, there are textual links, but textual links don't do much for us. Thematic links do more. What are the thematic links? Well, the theme in Genesis is what? Creation. The theme in John's gospel is salvation. And the theme in Revelation is judgment and the new creation. Now, let me go one stage further. Textual links do little for us. Thematic links do more for us. People do the most for us. Who is the central figure in each passage? Well, in Genesis, it is God, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. In John, the central figure is Jesus, his first coming. And in Revelation, the central figure is Jesus, his second coming. So three passages that are strikingly similar textually. Three related themes in the history of humanity, in the history of all things, in the history of the cosmos, in the history of salvation, creation, salvation or redemption, and judgment and the new creation. And one man, one God, at the heart of it all, the central figure is Jesus. Now, let's stop here and ask this question. John wants us to ask and answer this question as we contemplate the Word becoming flesh and making His dwelling among us. As we contemplate the, the, the Word becoming flesh in the, in the infancy of a child. As we contemplate the Word becoming flesh in the ignominy of the circumstances of His birth. As we contemplate the child as a man, his flesh ripped off his body 
He is the agent of creation, the agent of salvation, the bringer of judgment, and the creator of the new creation. Outside the central mosque in Portero is a banner that says, you may have seen it, a lot of you students will have seen it, Muslims believe in Jesus too, and they do, but they do not believe this about Jesus. And here in the Bible, we are confronted with the Jesus of Christian faith. Let me come at the question again. What is your view of Jesus? Now, this is a question that you could answer as somebody who's not a Christian. But I think equally as Christians, what is our view of Jesus? Have we contracted Jesus into uh, the span of our own consciousness or time or parameters? How large is our, our view of him? As Christians at Christmas, we are mindful of the baby Jesus, the child of promise. And rightly so. We got to grasp the, 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 the birth of a, a baby in terms of the weakness and the servant nature of, of, of Christ, but he is also Jesus the creator. He is also Jesus the teacher without match. He is the miracle maker. He is the suffering servant, the risen ascended and reigning Jesus. He is the judge of all. He is the creator, the agent of the new creation of God. Now, is all of this our view of Jesus? Now, we'll come back towards the end as to what the application of that question might be in terms of the grist to the mill and the day-to-day of life. Okay, let me just put that to one side, leave the question. Let's turn now to the text and just go through it bit by bit, trying to take it all in. We've seen the, the kind of the wood. Let's come down into the trees and grasp some of the richness of the details. Now, let's read verses one and two first. In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, there are three things about Jesus that we learn in these two verses. First, that Jesus is eternal. Now, that point is made twice. Just see it. In the beginning was the Word. Remember, Word is John's designation of Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. Now, earlier, as we looked at the first five verses of John as a whole, to highlight the corresponding passages in Genesis and Revelation and the theological links or historical links between Jesus at creation, Jesus' first coming to bring salvation, his second coming to bring judgment and the new creation. But what John does now is he takes us back a stage further to before creation. Jesus is eternal. He has always been. 
he always will be. Now that's about as far as we can go to explain that, I think. Let me come at it another way. He was not created. Now just as an aside, it's striking how the four gospel writers begin their narratives. Mark starts with John the Baptist as an adult. Matthew begins with a genealogy. That's why Matthew's gospel is put first in the canon, in the Bible, even though Mark was written first. Matthew begins with a genealogy that traces Jesus back to Abraham. Matthew then gives an account of Jesus' birth and the events around that. Luke begins his gospel with angels foretelling the imminent births of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then Luke goes on to describe the details of the birth and then puts his genealogy in chapter 3. I think Luke might have thought genealogy in chapter 1. No one's going to read my book. He goes in chapter 3, and Luke's genealogy goes back to God. He trumps Matthew. Here's the conclusion of Luke's genealogy. Luke 3.38, son of Adam, son of God. John, however, goes beyond creation to eternity. Jesus is eternal. I was chatting to somebody about this this week, and they said, please don't talk about Jesus being eternal, because it really unnerves me, it frightens me. I have no category. I cannot describe it. And we need, I think, to, to, to flirt with that risk. We need, I think, to, to, to come to the end of explanations for God. He is eternal. He has always been and always will be. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we'll come to that in a second, enjoyed their fellowship long before God breathed life into his image bearer's humanity. Now, the second thing we learn from these first two verses is that Jesus is fully God. The Word was God. Not that the Word, not that Jesus is divine, but less than God. Many people would argue, or Muslims will argue, that Jesus is divine but less than God, lesser divinity than God. So when we speak about Jesus as being fully divine and fully human, what we mean by that is fully God. There is nothing in God that Jesus is not. Jesus is fully God. If he were not, he could not save us. The third thing we learn is that Jesus was with God. Now notice what the text says. Just look at it closely. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And immediately you have a, a, a kind of paradox. How can the Word, Jesus, be God and with God at the same time? The answer is what is referred to as uh, the Trinity, and, and I think you guys as, as undergrads in uh, student lunch last week were looking at the doctrine of the, the Trinity uh, with Adam. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here at the beginning of John's Gospel, we have an explicit statement in this reference to the first and second persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. And John's gospel, more than any of the other gospels, teaches us about God the Holy Spirit, chapters 14, 15, 16. 
and 17. So Jesus was in the beginning. He is eternal. He was God and he was with God. Now we could, uh, well, people have, there's endless stuff being written about this. Endless stuff. But John's gospel is, is, is written in a way, I think uh, the, the sort of famous saying, I've never really understood it, that it's shallow enough for a child, I think, to walk in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. That doesn't really do anything for me, that illustration. I think it means it's kind of simple to grasp, but wonderfully profound. And I think sometimes the simplicity, the straightness of John's talking, we mustn't make it more sophisticated than it, than it is. He was God and he was with God. He was eternal. And then verse 3. There is nothing that was ever created that he did not create. That's what it says. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was uh, not uh, made. Uh, there's a, why does the ESV write literally? So when you read that, you've got to slow down and really slow down. So we'll do that. All things, all things were made through him. And without him was not made anything that was made. He made everything. So verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. All life was in Jesus at creation. And that life was light. A reference, I think, to the light that broke into the darkness at creation and to the perfection morally of Jesus. And so we come to verse 5, and we are introduced to another paradox or an ambiguity. What is he talking about? Notice the tense of John 1, the perfect tense, the past tense, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. He was, he was, he was. Now that's not implying that he isn't. It's not implying that Jesus is no longer God and no longer part of the Trinity. It's just establishing these credentials for Jesus at creation and before creation into eternity. But now in verse 5, notice the tense of the verb shifts. The light shines. Not shone, but shines. In the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Is this referring to creation? And I, had, I was reading a, 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 an essay on this this week, and it was so long that I nearly lost the will to live reading it. And this is the conclusion, okay? I had to steel myself not to jump to the conclusion at the start. Is that text, the light shines in the darkness, referring to creation? Yes. I think we could have all said that. Is the light shining in the darkness referring to the light that shines into the darkness of a fallen world of the incarnation? Why is it that, uh, I, I love Christmas lights. Do you love Christmas lights? How many Christmas lights? How many do you think you can have on a tree to not be godless? 500? You know what? I've really taken a fancy to this year. There's a little example of that in the road opposite. I don't know. I thought I'd never say this. It's quite close to a gnome. The little reindeer in your garden. 
Okay, you heard it for the first time here. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to get them this year, but why? Why is it we? Why is it we have lights everywhere? Why is that? Because the world is bleak and dark. It's not just because it's December and the shortest day. It's not just because of this endless rain. It's because the world is dark. So we brighten it up. I don't think for a minute most people think it's the light of the world. But I think everybody thinks the world is dark. So let's brighten up. The light shines in the darkness in our fallen world. The light shines in the darkness at the incarnation when the Word became flesh. Or, thirdly, is it referring to the hope for humanity that is the gospel, the salvation that is offered to anyone who believes? Yes, shines, shines. In the 2,000 years since Jesus' first coming, the darkness has never overcome the light. It's not even come close to overcoming coming the light. It might have in a particular period in a particular part of the world, but the light just springs up somewhere else. In fact, the light is constantly breaking into uh, the darkness, shadow by shadow by shadow by shadow dispelled. Into the age of salvation, the age of the church, the light will shine. The darkness will not overcome the light until the earth is bathed in the light of the new creation. Now, before we apply this in the time we have left, why is Jesus called the Word? The Logos. That's the, the word for word. Why is Jesus called the Logos or the Word? It's very unusual. Why does John go for that? The answer, I think, is simply this, that Jesus Christ, the person who was with God, who was God, who was incarnated, who became flesh, who uh, taught in an unparalleled way, who was the miracle maker, whose body was broken on the cross, who was raised, who ascended, who reigns, who imparts and imputes to us righteousness, to us and inside of us by his spirit, who will return as judge, who will author the new creation and reign over it, why is he called the Word? Because he, he is the supreme expression of the revelation of God. I think that's, let me just say that again. He is the supreme expression of the revelation of God. And uh, how is he revealed to us? As he speaks to us through his Word that he inspired. That makes sense? It's another reason to to, to stick fast to the revealed written word of God because that is to stick fast to the revealed person of God in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus that God's glory is revealed. It is in Jesus that God is made known. Now, let me um, 
I've tried to do this this week because I think it's easy in a passage like John 1 just to say what it says and, uh, and to try and really wrestle with so what and, and how does this impact us in our, our lives. Um, and I've put the title down there, Praying for Christmas. As we prepare for Christmas, uh, what are we praying for? And um, We're not actually preparing for Christmas anymore. We're right in the heart of it now. So what is it we're praying for? What do we want to be happening uh, to us as Christians as we study these passages? We'll come to evangelism um, in a minute. Let me uh, answer that by sharing how studying these verses this week have engaged my own heart uh, preparing uh, to, to preach. Um, firstly, um, just to put Christmas in context, if I can put it like that. So whenever... I sing of or think on the birth of the child, which is important in all of this. I want my mind, and interesting how many of the Christmas carols do this, I want my mind to be going to creation, to salvation, to Calvary, to the return of Christ, to redemption, the new creation, and to all eternity where he came, well, he didn't come from, he just is eternity. So setting off all of these thoughts and in, in putting Christmas in context. Why? And I think the word that I would draw on to say why is, is confidence or certainty. At two levels. Corporately and personally. Corporately, um, this week, uh, I'm, I, I, one of the things the elders let me do here is write. I, I, it's therapy for me. And uh, I'm writing about the gloom and doom of what's going on in our country at the moment. And it is pretty bad. I mean, it just is bad. Like every index of social capital, trust, social cohesion is at an all-time low. Institutions are collapsing. The big churches have collapsed. So on and so forth. The mountain to climb is massive. The vision of the Free Church of Scotland that has become the vision of many groups in Scotland is a healthy gospel church for every community in the land. Just how big a task is that to achieve? Let's just plant 1,400 churches. It's massive. The best vision in Scotland at the moment is a 30-30 vision, 30 churches by 2030 within one group, generation. That will be achieved. It's great. And, and it's foolish to bury our heads in the sand and to think we don't need to understand the times. There's plenty of biblical precedent to do that, but we must never, ever, ever think that the light will ever be overcome by the darkness. It can't. It won't. It's just that we happen to live in our small corner in history in this part of the world where it's quite dark. But the light will shine. The light will shine. And one by one, lights will be turned on in communities, in villages, in towns, in rural areas of this country with living gospel churches. And nothing can stop that. The devil will try, but he cannot stop it. It will happen. And uh, so uh, I began to put my realistic perspective in perspective of John 1. 
personally, what does John 1 do to us? Well, um, at Katrina's funeral on Tuesday, hundreds of us were there. We find comfort and hope in the words of the 23rd Psalm. The reason we use that psalm is because 10 minutes after Katrina died, her phone went off in the recess in RIE. And the text that came through on her Bible app was, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the family said, can you speak about that at the funeral? And I went, so we did. And all of a sudden, it all became real. Death became real. And we, we went to John's gospel to find out who the shepherd is. Now, this is the kind of stuff I would say to people when they are struggling. Not just in bereavement or in the valley of the shadow of death, but just in the bumps in the road of life of which there are many. Jesus said, I am the shepherd, I have come that they may have life. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then these sweet words, if that's not an inappropriate image of a shepherd. I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. And at that point in service one, there was a child who was crying all the way through the service. And at that point, the mum of that child stood up and went to that child. How on earth are you able to tell that it's your child when they cry? How on earth is the God who is eternal, creator, redeemer, savior, king, judge, author of creation and new creation, able to tell when you are crying He can. Now flip the coin. It is profound comfort to us when we are crying and when the shepherd comforts us to know that the shepherd is eternal creator, saviour. Is it comforting? Let me take you into the real realm of pastoral ministry. Sometimes it is to people. Sometimes it's kind of a threat that he's so sovereign that is it comforting? It is comforting. Why is it comforting? Because he is these things and and he is these things and therefore all will ultimately be well because he has the, the compass of salvation, the compass of every one of our lives as Christians in his hands and in his heart and, and he cannot forsake us. He cannot be cut away uh, from us. So these truths are vital. They are vital. The Jesus who was with God and was God in the beginning, the eternal Christ is my shepherd. Or I have a personal, sometimes we're down on that, aren't we? We're down on people to say, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. But what other kind of relationship can you have? I have a personal relationship with Jesus who is also the eternal God. Our Father. 
Our Father is what we pray, Abba. Our Father in heaven. Our Father, the most intimate expression in heaven, go to Hebrews, reigning as our priest and king. Our Father in heaven. Our Father, His majesty. Our Father, the King. Our Father, the eternal God. So you um, go home after this. Whatever's going on in your life, Jesus is your shepherd. He's there with you. But he's this massive, massive figure. And, and nothing's going to take you out in the end. So our confidence in Jesus grows in the grist to the mill of ordinary life where we need a shepherd when we realize who the shepherd is. The, the last application for us as Christians um, is that we worship him. <laughs> Do you know that one of the, the, the key applications of, of preaching uh, is, is um, worship him. Like We don't have to do something. Just worship him. Or, or in the words of uh, the, the hymn, Love Divine or Love's Excelling, Lost in Wonder, Love and Praise. I used to sing that. I was taught all these hymns off by heart as a kid. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. That doesn't mean to say that you don't know what's going on. It's lost in wonder, love, and praise when you do understand. Clarity brings wonder. Isn't it wonderful for us as Christians that we can embrace all that this season offers? And we need to embrace it and so much more because we understand. So when we go through Waitrose, not that we ever are in Waitrose, but say Tesco or Asda, and we hear, hark the herald angels singing, hark the herald, and we actually think, what is this saying? Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, born that humanity need not die. Where are the pigs in blankets? Yeah. We just know, we understand. So let's make it a prayer for us as Christians, that our confidence in the shepherd will be enlarged by our confidence in who the shepherd is. Let's pray that our confidence corporately will never be dampered in these tough times in which we live. And let's pray that we'll be, we'll be caught out this Christmas individually and together as a church really singing, come let us adore him. Come let us adore him. For he is Christ, the Lord. And the last word, though, has to be with John's purpose in writing his gospel. I have written these things so that you may believe that he is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's all pray through the rest of today, that people will be converted to Christ tonight. Let's not doubt that. Let's be confident in praying that. We can't make it happen.
Let's pray for Nigel and his choir and the orchestra, that they will play with Christian hearts and that we will sing in a way that people who come in have never heard before. And let's pray as God's word is preached from John, that people will believe and have life in his name and that darkness will cast out the shadows in their lives. Let's pray. Lord, that might be happening to someone here in church this morning. We pray that if it is happening, and if light is dawning in the darkness, in the shadows of their lives, that you would open their eyes, and that Christ would come in and find his home in their heart. Blown away by who he is, that tiny child in his weakness, indicative of his death on the cross in humility and shame and as a servant, is the God who is eternal, creator, redeemer, savior, prince of peace, reigning Christ, king of all, judge and author of the new creation. And yet, a shepherd who knows my name who hears my cries, who knows my sins and battles, who loves me and who will never forsake me. Father, our simple prayer is that this season of Advent in this church family and in many across the city and across this nation and indeed across the world, that many, many people will come to faith in Jesus Christ and find life in him. And that is our earnest prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.